What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Brandon Kelly, the host of Blue Wire's new podcast, Golden Gold. She takes everybody up. From Lionel Messi to Marta to Pele, our show takes a deep dive into soccer superstars. What a World Cup for Megan Rapinoe. From Zlatan Ibrahimovic's brash confidence with the play to back it up, to Megan Rapinoe's heroic outspokenness and World Cup flair. Each episode examines a personality of the world's game. We'll dig into Maradona's Hand of God performance and subsequent downfall. The teenage trio at Dortmund that signaled the next generation of superstars. And that infamous headbutt that slung Zinedine Zidane from glory. Golden Goal. Soccer stars and the moments that made them. Premiering this summer on Blue Wire. What is cracking, Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Favalli coming at you outside of Hardwood Knox's Decade Rankings Bubble this time. have a special guest for you guys today, uh, Yasmin. She is a co-host for the Dishes and Dimes podcast, which talks about the Toronto Raptors and the NBA at large. I highly recommend you check it out if you have not already. She is also the creator and writer at uh, an NBA culture journal called The Neon Playbook. She's written some great pieces over there. We're going to talk about some of them. We're going to talk about the NBA's bubble at large, as usual at this point. Um, Also about how players might use the platform to continue protests against police brutality and and racial inequality. That's become a typical topic around these parts as well. Uh, We're also going to talk player archetypes, and then we get into a, a deeper dive into the Toronto Raptors and their their title defense, which is a legitimate title defense. We're talking about what's going to happen for them um, once the season resumes and the playoffs start, looking at their players, matchups, whether they are the biggest threat to the Bucks in the East. But we also talk about their their big picture because they have a lot of interesting decisions to make this summer, given how many players are entering the free agent market and simultaneously their aspirations for a 2021 free agency. Before we get to Yasmin, though, I just wanted to continue reminding, imploring, begging, pleading with you to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you are consuming it. Um, Subscriptions and downloads are most appreciated. If you can go over to iTunes, throw us that five-star review, write a review, constructive criticism, feedback, suggestions, comments about Adam's calves, we'd, we'd really appreciate all of it, even if you're not using iTunes. Again, that stuff helps us out a lot. But you can also subscribe to us wherever else you're getting your podcasts. If you have done slash are doing all those things, we'd appreciate some recommendations, retweeting our promos, telling friends, family members, acquaintances, coworkers, random people on social media, any endorsements you can give, we forever appreciate. Finally, shout out to our sponsor, as always, betonline.ag. You will be hearing from them in just a couple moments. Now, though, let's get to Yasmin and talk about the NBA at large and the Toronto Raptors. Yasmin, thank you for coming on. I know this is a loaded question, as I say to every single guest that I have during these times, but how are you doing? 
<laughs> um, I'm doing great, uh, surprisingly enough. Um, yeah, I for, like for me personally, I love um, when I there are things happening that I can digest and reflect on and write about. So to me, like I love the overload of just information <laughs> that's currently happening right now. Uh, yeah, and an overload of information it is. Uh, the <laughs> the MBA is, it does seem dead set on getting started. And so mm -hmm. I wanted to begin with your thoughts on the bubble that, quite frankly, isn't actually a bubble. And you've written about this, uh, a, a, you've written about it extensively, and I enjoyed your thoughts on it. I thought you did a really nice job of sort of just balancing the, 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 the part of, hey, this is this is unsafe with also the hypocrisy of, well, we're all still going to watch. And so I'm just wondering if uh, I'm just wondering if you think it's it's fair to hold the NBA to the higher standard and lob this criticism at them when I think there's probably been like more fundamental, I don't want to say more, but there's just been more there, there's so much wrong with how the, you know, the United States specifically has handled all this. Mm -hmm. um, that can we really expect more from the NBA when we just can't get more out of really uh, the government or you know everyday life is just so screwed up in general? Yeah, um, I think what makes it more complicated is the fact that we can't really see an end in sight. So um, it's really hard to lob all of the criticism at the NBA because they exist in another bubble, which is the United States. Um, and especially like of, of all the locations to choose, it has to be, you know, the worst hit area right. in the States. Like I, I read yesterday that now Florida has more cases than Europe, all of Europe combined. Um, so it, it's, it's just a lose, lose situation. That's how I describe it. Like for players, for everyone involved, um, you know, personally, I think like, I'm trying to keep it on record. Cause I feel like we're going to be talking about this for years to come about that time. There was a global pandemic. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and the NBA was in limbo. So I'm trying to put it on record however many times that I can that I'm 100% against the league coming back, that I think this is a terrible idea and that, that um, the NBA will be dealing with the ramifications to, uh, from a historical sense, the fact that they're playing through so much sociopolitical unrest and also the fact that we don't know the ramifications of having coronavirus like um, from a chronic health point point of view. So um I feel like we're going to be looking back at this a lot. So there is enough criticism to go around, um, but it is a lose-lose situation. And, you know, um, I, it's, it's kind of strange, you know, Adam Silver is trying to um, frame it as, you know, they're trying to take a stand because sports matter and people need this, but it, it's really not for us. You know, it's, it, they have quotas to meet, they have money to make and, they don't want to deal with the ramifications of canceling the season because it's going to lead to, um, you know, having to rewrite the collective bargaining agreement and they don't want to deal with all of that. So um, it, it would be awesome if they would be more transparent, but I guess they want to um, start framing the narrative for how this is going to be viewed from a historical point of view. Um, but yeah, that, that it's a lose-lose situation. Yeah. So like I told you already, I skew entirely towards your stance and I think the, one of the things I agree on most with you is that the NBA just came out and framed it this way where it's like, look, there's a ton of money at stake. We really don't even kind of know if it's going to work. And we're, you know, they've said they're willing to stop if something happens. I guess if you frame it that way, it's at least it's more honest than playing the sports matter card because sports mm -hmm. do matter, but there's also, you know, 
they're inessential relative to general livelihood and everything. I think you can, I think that you can, it's, I actually don't find it a hard line to straddle that you can say, yeah, the, the NBA shouldn't be starting back up again, but if they do, you're, you're going to watch it. We're going to cover it because that's part of our jobs. And yeah, you'll enjoy the play, but it just doesn't seem the, just the risk involved right right, right now. And there's so much we don't understand. And even there's, there needs to be plenty more done about the, the long-term effects of having COVID-19 in mm-hmm. general, but just the stuff I've read about sort of the permanent lung damage that people have suffered from this, it's its really scary. And so it doesn't feel like, I'm, I'm with you where it doesn't feel like the league is coming back right now. It's just so hard to wrap my head around how how do you end up, like, how do you view it? Because it does seem like they're going to come back. Is it going to be okay to enjoy it once it does come back? Uh, that's a dilemma that's really minor on, on a large scale of things, but they're putting just everyone in this weird predicament of uh, like rooting for something because you're, you're going to be covering the game or you'll be enjoying the game. You're, that is just, it's just wildly unsettling still at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So when it comes to that, I, I, I've come to terms with the fact that I'm going to watch it <laughs> right. if it's on TV and it actually airs. Um, I like, I know some people have like made the decision that they're not going to consume this season. They're going to, they're going to completely kind of, boycott it um but personally i will watch it if it goes through i think it's gonna happen but i would not be surprised if it just um implodes uh, like halfway through or something if it gets to a point where we're seeing entire teams um sick because of the way it spreads so easily um then i can see it um happening like it, it could even happen early in the season like imagine you're playing like in the first round um, and an entire team gets sick because right. they will be in locker rooms. Right. They're not going to be social distancing when they're practicing and rehe- you know rehearsing as a team. So, um, if something like ha- that happens where an entire team wipes is wiped out, like then I can see um, everything kind of falling apart at that point. But I do think it's going to go through. Um, and it, I, the fallout <laughs> if they were to uh, cancel their resumption of the season would be so devastating, I feel like, to the league. Um, it, it would be just such a PR nightmare um, that could also affect next season. So I feel like they've already absorbed and um, come to terms with all of the um, all of the fallout that could potentially happen. So if they acknowledge that then i've come to terms with the fact that i'm probably going to watch <laughs> and i think in the end the the answer would be it should absolutely be fair to hold the nba to a higher standard just because they've capitalized on this reputation as a super progressive league or the most uh, progressive sports league in the world basically and you know holes have been poked in that there was the whole hong kong thing at the beginning of this past season and so if you want to view the nba through that lens or if they want to be viewed through that lens they should absolutely be held to this higher standard and I, yeah again, and i think and it's, it's, oh go ahead sorry, sorry. <laughs> i just want to put a point on what you just said like it's it, and it's kind of uh, completely unearned you know that reputation it's really the work of their own players right. doing it on their own dime on their own reputation um and even what we're going to see like we're we're hearing about how they're going to try and use um the postseason as a platform um to bring awareness and it's like yeah but you guys just signed a contract with the federal and state police um in florida to guard these players and then you're going to expect them to be protesting the police state <laughs> while they're playing so it, it's it, there there's just such like a cognitive dissonance there 
um, with the NBA. And we're kind of seeing how flimsy their reputation as the, the progressive league is. It's, it's just based on the progressiveness of their players. Yeah, who also, one of the problems with the players seems like they want to leave the bubble too. And I think they were talking about giving access to players to the theme park should they reopen after they're closed. Mm-hmm. And that creates these, all these other different sorts of issues. And so I hope, it, because I agree with you that I think the NBA is going to come back. I hope it ends up working, but just what we know about how easily everything spreads, the fact that there are people going to be in and out of the bubble, potentially technically players themselves, really, if they're going to theme parks, even when they're closed, I'm, I'm remain skeptical that we're going to, to end up finishing this season. And like you said, there's going to be a devastating fallout from that. Yeah. I I hope it goes through. I hope it um, goes on without a hitch. I hope everyone remains healthy and that we get a really immersive and, you know, high end viewing experience that it feels like we're not missing out on the crowds Mm -hmm. being there and everything. Like I hope it goes through like excellently. That's what I hope for. But uh, my brain is telling me that that is just, you know, a pipe dream. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And you, so this is probably a good segue. You're talking about how the NBA, it's built its reputation on the back of its players. 100% true. And so you wrote a piece um, mentioning specifically called politicizing play at the neon playbook. I'd highly recommend everyone to check it out. Um, about how important it can be to send these messages through sport and how, um, you know, you would reference what Ben Shapiro had said, where sports can't be an escape during this time because they're a platform that can basically, um, they're going to be able to champion change and that they, if the players want to use, looking at the NBA specifically, the platform they're going to have in Disney um, to continue to send these messages to protest in favor of um, racial equality and, and against police brutality they're, they're, we know they're absolutely going to. And my, my one question to you is, do you think they ultimately can, assuming the season is going to happen, do you think that they end up sending a bigger message by using the platform that they're going to have? Or is it technically more effective if we start to see players um, staying out of the bubble, not continuing the season um, for this exact reason? Um, again, like I think it goes back to the fact that this whole situation is just lose-lose. Um I, I really can't see them effectively using their platform uh, as a means to bring change or as a means to maybe they can bring awareness um, the same way people have been using doing it through the Internet and through social media. Yeah, but as for using a platform at Disney, a multi-billion dollar company um, with their contract with the police, um, I, it's it's impossible. Like that's the thing about living um in the current system, like it's the same thing when people ask you to vote to bring about change, when in reality, like your options are so limited and not reflective of the wants of society. Like, like the whole thing. The re- the reason why I was writing about it is that you can all you can you can find yourself feeling so powerless in the system, and if for players who are playing, if they want to express themselves. Um, using whatever limited pr- platform that they have, l- let them have that agency, let them have that power. Because oftentimes when we think about agency, it's not, it's not about, it's always about, you know, free agency. It's about within the realm of the game. But when we're talking about people who want to express themselves and ultimately, you know, entertainment, it is a sport, it's art, it's how people want to express themselves and it's how they want to communicate to people. Like we need to allow that, but its effectiveness is, is it's just, it's not realistic. Um, but you know, to sit out, I don't know if it's going to bring it about any meaning. Like I remember, um, 
reading something just the other day from Fred Van Vliet, who was talking about, uh, for The Athletic, talking about how ultimately, whether they play or not, they're in this weird spot where their decision may not be the correct one. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it, they're, they're left making such a, a huge decision that they ultimately didn't want to make. Like as players, they are people, they, they've been trained since, you know, being like toddlerhood. Like they were classically trained and this is oftentimes all they know, this world of basketball is all they know. So when they have, when they're made to make this decision that they didn't sign up for, like it's, it, it's really, it's really, really, really tough at the end of the day. So, um, I don't, there is no right or wrong decision when it comes to this situation. Um, but I am all for expression. Um, and if that's the route that they choose and if, if this is the means to the end, like I, I do support it. Yeah. And I think it's, especially for someone like me, I would just never dare to instruct them on how to do it. And so exactly, I think it's, I think you hit it right there where it's, there's really no wrong answer here. My one concern about, I think if you, when you're looking at the exposure um, relative to how there's not much happening, especially with live sports right now, if you get to Disney and everything's you know happening without issue, it does seem like that platform could be pretty big. My one, I don't know if it's a concern, I guess my, my question or worry or whatever it would be is how can you um, politicize the sport in a way that people can't ignore it? Because, you know, the pirated idea, because that's what it was of, you know, uh, the jerseys, uh, which originated, I believe, from the WNBA. Okay, yeah. that's cool. Um, painting Black Lives Matter on the court, that's fine. But what what can be done where people won't be able to ignore it or where it's a more active form of expression? And, you know, I know they've talked about doing things in post-game and pre-game, but people can tune out of post-game and pre-game shows pretty easily. And so can they do something during actual broadcast that isn't just painting Black Lives Matter on the court? And I would hope that they put you know, the Players Association, the league, everybody puts far more creative minds than than I have together yeah. to figure out how to do that. Because one of the lines that really stood out from your piece, too, was the uh, politicization of sports is supposed to make you uncomfortable. It's supposed to disorient you and defile your escapism. Art, whether it's deemed high or lowbrow, is a means of communication. And I'm just worried that the message, even if it's, even if it's the right attempt, if it's an enviable attempt, I don't want it to sort of fall flat or be easy to ignore. And so I'm hoping that they just come up with something more creative than we've seen a uh, trickle out so far in terms of the ideas that they've come up with. Yeah, I can, I can see if they're smart, they will, they will use those halftime breaks um, in the middle of games instead of giving us, you know, um, I, they're not going to have cheerleaders. What am I thinking? Like, um, instead of, you know, do, doing what they usually do, um, it would be interesting if they could, um, perhaps have um organizers direct short films or you know something of the sort like there is a way to reach the average viewer the average american um through this but we'll we'll see what happens honestly i mean this is what i'm excited for and again this is what's going to um you know historically define this year for the league and really kind of shape its um its reputation rather than the players um, and their progressiveness. This is its chance to um, establish itself and express itself as an association. Right. Which is huge because there's no, there's not really that portrait of uniform, like for any sports league where if they, if they can really make the most of this time in Disney, again, assuming it happens, assuming that something catastrophic doesn't um, transpire between now and then it does really feel like this could be an opportunity for, um, you know, not just the players and not just the champion change, but for the league's reputation as well, as you pointed Mm -hmm. out. Thank you.
Attention Hardwood Knox listeners, there is no shortage of action going on at our exclusive partners, betonline.ag. Sports are slowly making their way back, and BetOnline is leading the way with the best odds and lines for all UFC, NASCAR, boxing, and soccer matches. And if you need even more, they have simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC events all day, every day, live on their website. Looking for something else other than sports? BetOnline has hundreds of casino games, poker tournaments, and prop bets to check out. Visit BetOnline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, for a free welcome bonus. That's one word, Blue Wire. Bet online, your online wagering experts. This is a much lighter question that I'm going to get to after hitting you with some. I welcome it. (laughs) Um, You also wrote this piece that I really enjoyed um, called Brainstorming Player Archetypes. And so you had uh, talked about three of them. And so before I ask you about them, I'm just wondering what inspires you to to break, to like come up with more um, creative player archetypes? Like what was the itch to to make you write this piece? Um, Honestly, it's just a reflection of how I discuss basketball with my um, co-hosts on the show, how I discuss it with my friends. Like for me personally, I know this is the case actually for a lot of people who enjoy basketball, but I, I view it the same way. I view like TV, how I view film, how I view art, like I, how I read books. Like this is, it's, it's really just the same category for me. It's um, it, it's all considered art for me. So when I watch basketball, I see characters, I see, um, what the players are presenting on that stage of theirs. Cause we, we don't know them personally, but, um, the way they express themselves on the court to me is how I view them. When someone, you know, throws a name at me, this is the immediate kind of, um, image or silhouette that I see in my head. So I wanted to write something that, um, would kind of reflect how I discuss basketball in real life. So, um, I, I kind of realized that a lot of people relate to it. This is how they view, uh, players in, in any sport as well. So, um, that's why I wanted to write it. Yes, yeah, so you had the the employee, the trick or treater, and the world eater in your first installment. I was when I was reading the employee one, um, where you sort of have like the quick like snapshot breakdowns, and it's um, for business outside of basketball, angel investor to several app startups has a restaurant <laughs> yeah. hometown, and I was just like, that is so specific and so spot on. It was just absolutely <laughs> hysterical. And so I know you identified your favorite within these three archetypes, but do. Is are these? I think it was World Eater that you identify as your favorite. Is that actually your favorite? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Is there a um, oh yeah? Is there an installment that's not yet written where maybe another favorite archetype is coming out that you can spoil anything along those lines? I will. I will spoil another one, like the one that I wanted to fit into this one, but I didn't want to, um, you know, give it all away. Is the villain? So people who kind Ooh. of relish that role of the villain um, in the story that is the NBA season, but. Um, for, yeah, the world eater is definitely my favorite. It's the player that, you know, screams when they dunk. They they are the hero in their own tale. Um, I, 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 I love those personalities. I love um, that kind of confidence. Um, yeah, that, that's been my favorite player since I was a child. Like, that's the player that I want to watch. Uh, I love watching, you know, um, Giannis. I love watching even like a player like Pat Bev, who's just like so passionate, <laughs> and like he, he has he builds these narratives to fuel him. And same with Draymond Green. Like a lot of people despise like that kind of expressive, um, almost angry player. But for me, like I love that passion um, that they're you know playing with. Like to me, it, it fuels their style, it fuels their um, skill set, and it fuels their. Um, how how good they are that you know it's hard to it's hard to hate it for me (laughs) 
they're also the player because I actually think they would I've the way I've identified these players is because you listed all the players that are among my favorite to watch like a um or the ones that I most respect too the I've identified them as the players I would follow into hell and yes, Damian yes. Lillard, Kyle Lowry, <laughs> Patrick Beverly, Giannis, like those are all the guys that come up when you're talking about that. So that ends up being my favorite archetype too. Uh the so the employee um, I know you have examples right now. Can you tell us just to take us through the last one? Can you tell us a little about the what the employee archetype entails? Yeah, um, they they they're I have to say they're not my favorite because they, they uh, for for me like I like I said earlier I like to view basketball as um, as art as theater. Like to me, I'm watching um, a performance. I'm watching a season, like literally a season of a program for me. Um, but these players, they kind of. Um, uh, intrude on the narrative that I've established in my head because they <laughs> they really treat the season they treat it as like they're clocking in and they're clocking out like this is their job um, they've um, you know if if they could play in complete anonymity and get paid for it and do what they love they totally would um, but I do I will say I respect their work ethic but um, this player is um, pretty boring they're not boring to watch I will say <laughs> but their ongoings like um, uh, they, 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 they tend to be kind of amusing. Like I, the examples I wrote were uh, Nikola Jokic and Kawhi Leonard. We love their disposition because they're just, they're so unique <laughs> as players off court. We just, we, we kind of laugh, um, uh, at them rather than with them. Um, but you know, they, they, they are, they, they are, um, it's, 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 it's kind of boring for me, honestly. I, I'll be honest. <laughs> I get that. And I, I think especially because you distinguish that people that fall into this category, like you had a listed Nikola Jokic, they don't have to be boring to watch. It could just be yeah, there. Exactly. Yeah. He's one of the most entertaining entertaining players to view. Um, you know, but it, like I, at the same time, I absolutely love like a Joel Embiid for the complete opposite reason. <laughs> and then, so there's Trick or Treater in this one. And my, <laughs> I think this probably had my favorite description where you said they play every night um, like it's a long Nike ad. And then the names you list are just hits that right on hits the heart of that too. So are you able to just <laughs> yeah. explain that a little bit more to us as well? Yeah, uh, this player is. Um, uh, I feel like their view of basketball was kind of um, born out of like you know, like Mike and like you know uh, those basketball productions. Um, they have like a very um, they're similar to the World Eater. Is it's a very small distinction. The World Eater plays with a chip on his shoulder. You know what I mean? Like the, the oftentimes, like I wrote in the world eater description, they tend to be um, either uh, short basketball players or foreigners. Like there's usually something that fuels that chip on their shoulder, mm -hmm. but the, uh, the um, trick or treater, it was probably very popular in school, probably very well loved um, to them. Um, they come into the league and already feel as though they're superstars like that. It's a very different distinction, but the outcome is the same. They both, they're both winners, you know? And I would just like to single out the the business outside of basketball that you gave an example of for the trick or treater was hugely popular energy drink in South Korea, huge Japanese yeah. subculture following. Uh, if you have not read this piece, please go over to the neonplaybook.com and read it. It was it was so fun and enjoyable, and I think the player archetypes concept is one that you can take anywhere. And I look forward to I look forward to seeing the the next installment. I very much want to read about about the villains now. Yeah, working on it. <laughs> I do have – are you ready to, to answer some Toronto Raptors questions, though? Oh, absolutely. I'm always ready for the Raptors. <laughs> so I I won't call this a victory lap because I, I get 99% of the things that I say wrong, but I was generally higher on the Raptors than the consensus heading into the season. However, I did not see a two-seed coming 
for them. Are you at all surprised um, as someone who follows the team more intimately uh, at where they are um, given the offseason turnover? Or is there even just an element of this team that's somewhat shocking to you given what kind of happened between them winning the championship last year to the start of this season? Um, I, I, I'll say that I was totally expecting the success because um, I feel like they have an established system and they have several figures within the team that are the architects of that system. So if you've retained Nick Nurse and you've retained Kyle Lowry, I feel like you're set up for success. And if you just surround them with capable bodies, you will have a successful team. Um, I did not expect like them to complete the season or to go through the season with like such swagger and dignity <laughs> like I did not because it's a little demeaning when your finals MVP uh goes off to LA you know what I mean it's hard to deny it right. uh, especially if you've had like such a storybook playoff run and then they leave so just seeing how much confidence that they're playing with like when the Toronto Raptors come to your arena they're playing like the champions and that's something that I did not expect I thought there would be some growing pains I thought there would be some um painful wins and where they, you know, edge it out, ugly wins, but, um, and embarrassing losses. But there's been an absence of that this season. Like, they've just carried themselves as champions. Um, the season was such a joy to watch. Like, I cannot express it. It was, every Raptors fans will tell you that it was far more stress-free and enjoyable than last season. Um, the playoffs are another story, but the regular season was just, uh, just thoroughly enjoyable. They are. Every year there are like two teams that I become, maybe two or three teams I become attached to as someone who's really just not attached to any team. And this year yeah. it, was, it was OKC and Toronto just because I actually didn't think Toronto, I thought it was more likely that OKC sort of busted it up during the middle of the year. I never thought Toronto would bust it up. I just didn't, you know, I I thought if anything, this would be a, you know, like boy title defense where it's, oh, cool, you got the five <laughs> seed or the four seed, not where... You know, I've talked with, and I'll ask you about this later. But you know, there's a path to them coming out of the Eastern Conference. Like, there's an exactly path that's a shocking part. That I will say that that too shocked me. Like, I knew that they would be competitive. I knew that they would be a high, like up there. Um, but in the past, like Raptors teams have been number one in the East and flamed out in the playoffs. But when I view this team and I view how the fundamentally solid they are at every position and how you know defensively there is not a leak on the entire roster. I'm like actually thinking like this is a team that could really give a fight to end up in the finals. And they've sort of like taken on where it used to just be this reflexive, oh, the Spurs have the the best culture and you can count on them to be good or you can count on them to groom players and develop players on their roster. I think that team is officially now the Raptors. Just looking yeah. at, you know, Terrence Davis, Chris Boucher, like even Matt Thomas, like Ronnie Hollis Jefferson having some success in the middle of the season after sort of flaming out in, in Brooklyn. They've... I think they've officially become that team. Yeah, yeah, they've. I, it's something that they've been, you know, architecting for the past half decade. You know, um, creating a, a kind of self-sufficient system where they mine for um, accessible talent, talent that's not, you know, that they don't have to tank for, and they continue winning. And then they bring in these players who are kind of diamonds in the rough into a winning culture, which is so underrated. Like you can, we've seen um, talented players flame out in a losing culture, but when you bring these unpolished gems into a winning culture and see how it kind of polishes them uh, and kind of teaches them the excellence, like it, it, they've kind of found this winning formula that can just, it's cyclical, like it can keep going for years. Now, so looking at Pascal Siakam specifically, he's he seems like at once he's achieved the 
uh, inarguable stardom where maybe people, if they, they shouldn't have remained skeptical, particularly after watching him in the playoffs last year. But if it was like, oh, well, you had Kawhi and, and Kyle Lowry as a safety net, that's like, he just doesn't, there's no excuses now for him. Um, but there's also like, if you mention him in, you know, is he better than Jason Tatum? Uh, some people get offended. And I think it's, it's, it's an actual conversation wherever you land on it mm-hmm. to me. And I think part of that probably has to do that his efficiency has sort of dipped um, over the regular season. Uh, is there anything you're seeing there that concerns you? Does it have to do with, um, you know, his groin injury? Um, is it just him getting used to his new terms by, by which he, he operates and the shot difficulty that comes with it? Uh, are people just underrating him in general at this point by thinking that, you know, what he's been doing on offense is actually is super valuable. And when you have such a, I don't want to say a change in role, but where there's this uptick in usage, you can't really get caught up in, in the efficiency over the course of an entire season. Yeah, no, I think all the points you brought up are valid into kind of how his season has panned out. I think the uh, comparison be- between both players is valid, um, right? Their, their stats are like shockingly similar and identical um, in a lot of um, rows. But um, I, it's interesting because they're such opposites in terms of um, their story into basketball. Like you have... Um, Jason Tatum, who's kind of like your quintessential um, high-achieving prospect where he's been kind of scouted since he was in high school and college and he had the mm-hmm. hype around him coming into the league. And yeah, he had some struggles in his first years um, where his efficiency was kind of a running joke and his shot selection and, you know, being kind of like a off-brand Kobe and stuff in the beginning. But uh, and then you have Pascal Siakam, who's someone who did not play the the sport in any organized level until he was 16 years old, when Jason Tatum was already on national radars. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then you have them both. Um, and then you have them both here in the NBA, um, leading their teams um, to success in their conferences. Um, I, I for Pascal, he's so interesting because. Um, few people kind of point out like the intelligence it takes to grasp basketball at such a high level starting so late. Um, and his growth as a, if you look at his growth as a graph, like the spike that he's experienced in his um, shot, like his shot um, field goal attempts, his um, just everything. If you look at it, it's unprecedented in the NBA. Like there has been no player that has had a year to year spike um, and increase in efficiency. Like there was a point where he was the worst three-point shooter in the NBA <laughs> um, right. just two years ago. <laughs> like that is not made up. And then he's suddenly shooting at a high volume, at a, slightly above league average. Like that's that's so unprecedented here. So um, th- there are a multitude of reasons why I think Pascal's like uh, um, his um, efficiency kind of dipped towards the middle and um, you know latter third of the season. Um, I think that. Uh, as fans have noticed, um, Nick Nurse, he's, he's spoken about this a lot, where he likes making his players uncomfortable as a means of um, mm-hmm. development. So uh, for Pascal in particular, um, even he is um, he's an excellent um, he he's an excellent like straight line driver. Like he can get straight to the rim. That was he's an excellent cutter. Um, he can he has a uh, several post up moves that can, that are very high efficiency. Um, but we're seeing him um, being forced to. Um, dribble, handle the ball into crowds, collapse defenses, and then pass out to shooters. So that they're trying to create, um, they're trying to build him as a system. So they want him to be the center of the 
offense for the Raptors and have the players um, kind of build around him. And, you, you know, in order to develop that, that style of player, it's going to take growing pain. It's going to be ugly at times, especially for someone who may not have that foundational basketball kind of experience. Like it's not quite muscle memory for him yet. Um, and then you have Jason Tatum, who um, is being, you know, what run through like these um, pick and roll sequences that we know and that are really fun to watch from the Boston Celtics. Um, and he's someone who struggles with double teams, with triple teams. And we're going to see um, Brad Stevens put him through that eventually, mm-hmm. that next stage of his development, forcing him to, um, you know, bring up that assist rate and to um, collapse defenses and to look for his teammates. Um, but yeah, so uh, f- it's interesting because for the Raptors, in the last two minutes of the game, um, Pascal Siakam starts playing like Jason Tata. <laughs> so <laughs> instead of Kemba and Jason, you'll see um, uh, Pascal and um, Kyle Lowry. And the the Raptors right now have like the best crunch time offense in the NBA. Like it is a significant um, difference between the one and two. So uh, it, it's interesting. Like I, I'm sure if um, Nick Nurse let him do that two minute of that two minute offense throughout the entirety of the game, we'd have a different Pascal. We'd have a different uh, stat sheet for him. But um, it, I, I personally like seeing that um, that difficulty level um, being altered throughout the season. And I'm sure the style of play we're going to see from him um, is going to be different in the playoffs. Yeah, and I, I'm like just a big proponent of offensive diversification. And so you're looking at, I think what's at, probably most encouraging about the season is you've seen his usage skyrocket. You just outlined basically all the reasons why. And yet his turnover rate is actually lower. And even if it was a little bit higher, it'd be fine. But it's still not through the roof, regardless of how you look at it. And something that probably one of the best stats that illustrates this change is this is someone who is taking point one off the dribble threes per game last year and he's now up to 2.5 per game like his role has just changed so significantly and mm-hmm. you know, hopefully he'll probably get more comfortable as he does it and i would love to fast forward three years down the line just to see where him and tatum are at i'd probably yeah. maintain him right now but this is this is like an actual discussion worth having yeah um i, I per, like tatum's age is definitely a factor that we have to acknowledge like um he's not even on the cusp of his prime yet and he's already so excellent um, but what's interesting about Pascal is that um, it, I can see them trying to um, develop him as a small forward. Um, I think that's the future for him. I think that Nick Nurse wants him to be kind of a jack of all trades in the offense. Um, and that's going to be an ugly process, but it gives the Raptors a lot of um, uh, leeway in the future when they're building around him. So it, it gives them that flexibility. Um, that kind of allows them to choose multiple futures for the team. Like if they had a one, a, a dude who had one skill set, it would be much tougher to build around him. So Kyle Lowry, like everything he does is on the court is just known at this point. Can, are you able to contextualize at all how important he is to to what the Raptors are doing? Because I, I still feel like there's this disconnect between um, what he, how important he is to the Raptors, and then how he's really viewed outside of the the Toronto fan base. And if yeah. you dare mention his name in the top 20, top 25 player conversation, it's met with a ton of pushback. And look, I'm not even trying to Raptors shill here. Like Kyle Lowry is just so ridiculously good. And so I'm wondering if coming from you, can you at all just contextualize how important Lowry is to, to the Raptors? Um, it's it's really hard to con- contextualize it because Kyle Lowry is basically the current Raptor system. Like he is one of the guys that forged it. So you know, coming to the team, what, seven years ago, going through those growing pains, and then 
um, kind of establishing the current culture for the team. Like it's really hard to kind of put into words his importance to the system. Um, he's really the the mastermind behind it, not from an, just an offensive point of view, because we know that he runs the Raptors offense. He has the, you know, he's averaging what eight assists per um, game right now. Uh, but it, he runs their defense too. He's the one quarterbacking the defense. He's the one organizing players and telling them where to be. And he's the one um, who has mentored uh, what I think three starters <laughs> on the team right now, Fred Van Vliet, Pascal Siakam, um, OG Ananobi, all mentored by Kyle Lowry. So, and not include, that's not even including Norman Powell, who, who has been having an amazing season right now. Um, so it's really hard to um, stress how important he is to the Raptors right now. Nick Nurse is like literally watch any interview of Nick Nurse. He's going to spend time talking about how important Kyle Lowry is and giving his, uh, giving him his flowers at any moment that he can. Um, but yeah, he's he's hugely important um, t- uh, to the Raptors. Also an NBA player I'd legitimately like to hang out with. Like, I think people try and they're going to sensationalize NBA player personalities. Like, I'm not sure if I'd want to hang out with LeBron James. I want to hang out with Kyle yeah. Lowry. He seems like a he's, dude that you actually want to hang out with. Yeah, he he's like, um, he's someone who could fit into multiple uh, player archetypes. He's also kind of an employee. Like, he's no frills. <laughs> he's just like a, he's such a normal guy um, who treats, like, the team as kind of like a brotherhood. Like, he's, he's that glue um, for the team. And it's like, it's so hard to express how important he is for that and how important it is that he's kind of grooming Fred to take over that role for him. You you mentioned OG Ananobi and might be and is definitely among the best on-ball defenders in the NBA right now. And I think he's mostly been considered someone who will be one of those 3 and D players. What I've kind of been mm-hmm. most intrigued by, though, this season is that he's just a little bit more comfortable or a lot more comfortable attacking closeouts. Uh, mm-hmm. More of his shots are coming inside three feet than ever. He's averaging a career high. I think it was when I last checked, it's like 3.5 drives per game or something like that. Uh, having if if you left him alone right now and he just grew on on this current groundwork that he's laid, that's still a really good player. Do you see yeah. any more like bandwidth for him to improve on offense? Where maybe is this someone who's hitting off the dribble jump jumpers eventually? Do they try and maybe um, get him to play make a little bit more for others, or do we think that this is maybe he'll be a much better version of someone who attacks closeouts, hits threes, and and defends his ass off? Do you think that this might just be um, this is the groundwork for what he's going to be in the NBA long term? Um, I, I see flashes of um, a potential, like, very, very high-end um, borderline all-star in OG. Um, yeah, he's already starting to attack closeouts. Um, one thing that fans always point out about his play is that he's really good with passing um, in the paint. So, like, if he's playing the four, he's really good at getting the ball to the five. He's really good at kind of uh, facilitating in that closed area. Um, and also... Um, it's important to remember coming out of college, he was a non-shooter. Um, he was just really known for his defense and athleticism. Um, and he was described as a, a three and D guy without the three, you know what I mean? Right. So uh, the fact that they've polished him into such a, um, uh, like such a um, technically sound three and D guy. Like to me, he's like the, he, when I think three and D in the NBA, I think very few players, like I think Robert Covington, I think of, um, OG Ananobi, like th- that kind of guy who can shut down the opposing team's best player and also give you 38%. You know what I mean? Right. So um, for, for me, his ceiling is um, 
I don't see that handle getting better. Um, <laughs> his, yeah, his handle is just one thing that I don't know that can improve. Like his coordination with that is does not seem natural for him. But I can see him as a guy that um, does can develop uh, in between game. Like I can see him developing um, uh, like kind of a mid range jumper. Um, and I can see him developing a couple of post moves that he can kind of go and grab out of the pocket. But uh, yeah, I, I project him to be like a borderline all-star, just a very high-end uh, role player. Um, and hopefully the Raptors can retain that because he's just in this league where we're seeing um, like there, there are just so many dominant young small forwards that I can see kind of just taking over for the next you know, decade and a half right. right now in the NBA. Like you have your Zion, you have Luka Doncic, you have Jason Tatum, you have um, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, like so many dominant small forwards to have that player that can just kind of wipe them out of the game, uh, which OG Ananobi does. Like if you look at his numbers and his defense against opposing small forwards, you'll notice one thing and that's they barely attempt shots. <laughs> and the reason why is because they have this 6'8", you know, giant kid <laughs> blocking their way. I'm interested to see whether the Raptors end up signing him to an extension or waiting until restricted free agency because we know they, like many other teams, they want to do they want to play the 2021 free agency game. But yeah. if you can get him for you know a discount because maybe he's concerned about the injuries he's had, I wouldn't want to let him get into restricted free agency. Oh, where, he's going to be a hot commodity yeah. in this era of basketball. Like someone would throw just a ridiculous offer sheet at him if he gets there. So I'm very interested to see how they they handle that. I do have a. Big picture questions for you about the Raptors, obviously. But the first thing I wanted to ask is, uh, if you're putting your brutally honest cap on, are the Raptors the biggest threats to the Bucks in the Eastern Conference? Um, out of all the teams in the Eastern Conference, absolutely. Like I, whether the Raptors get out of this, there's the second round matchup is most likely going to be Raptors Celtics. Um, whether the Raptors come out of that series or not, like I think that they are the best option for dealing with the Milwaukee Bucks. They have the best defensive bodies to throw at Giannis, just having Marcus All, having Ogiananobi, having Pascal Siakam, Kyle Lowry, like their uh, their sheet of defenders that can go toe to toe and architect that wall that can block off the paint like they did last season. They can literally replicate it. Whether they can um replicate that offense at the end of the day, their defense is even better than last season. And one thing the Raptors has shown is that your if your offense is not excellent, you can bring the other team down to your level and make it a game of really, uh, really old school, like below a hundred points basketball. <laughs> so, um, in my opinion, they are the best bet. I feel like if I feel like the Sixers. Offense is not passable enough. And the same for the um, Miami Heat's defense. I think that the Boston Celtics probably possess like the next biggest threat. Um, but I feel like Kemba is just too exploitable on that end. Um, and someone like um, Bledsoe can exploit that. You know, he needs to have a, a high-end defensive uh, point guard guarding someone like Bledsoe. So um, it's, it's that, I do think that they are the best bet. I personally don't think that they can be the Bucks like I we did playoff projections on the Dishes and Dimes podcast recently and I was the only one who said I think that the Bucks have it this year um, coming out of the East but I do think I would not be shocked if the Raptors came out of it and it's going to six or seven games in my opinion yeah that's I, I would probably default like you did to the Bucks coming out but that the way we've seen Eric Bledsoe kind of crater on offense the past two post seasons yeah. and um, they do look if if Dante DiVincenzo helps with an extra lay of shot creation or uh, if Chris Middleton just plays out of his mind, maybe I think I it, I would pick the Celtics or the Raptors as well, and so I'm hoping we 
that that's one of the conference finals matchups we get. Really quickly, are you at all, since you mentioned Marcus Gasol, is there like any, the way that there's concern about Jokic losing all this weight, is there a concern about him <laughs> in the same vein? Um, I, I think that uh, Marcus Gasol's offensive, um, or sorry, defensive strength comes from the fact that he's not afraid to absorb contact. Like he, he's fine. He's kind of like Kyle Lowry in that sense. I always say that he's like the the center version of Kyle Lowry and Kyle Lowry is like the <laughs> point guard version of Marcus Gasol. Um, but he, in the sense that he's not afraid of contact, he's not afraid of kind of embracing and just kind of absorbing that hit. Um, and also he's extremely smart with his feet placement. Like his, he, he's not the quickest guy, but he knows where you're going to be. He's that intelligent when it comes to defense. Uh, and we saw it like um, just last finals, like how he was coming up towards um, Steph Curry of all people. Like people were projecting that Marcus would be played off the floor, but no, it was a complete opposite. They needed him. Yeah. Marcus is not going to be switching on to wings with his quicker feet. <laughs> that, someone said like, now he's, he's going to be, disf- he's going to be defending wings now. <laughs> and I, I think also, which proves that I thought way too much about this is that with Jokic, one of the main concerns might be, like, he is, like, finesse and style in the post, but he's also, like, force. And now Marc Gasol just yeah. doesn't – he's not posting up nearly as much as he was. He was – Oh, no, he's taking that, that like, like um, it, it, it's 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 really frustrating to watch because you see how huge he is and you could see that he could just body guys. But Marc Gasol was struggling to post up um, Tobias Harris during the Sixers series last year. Uh, he's, he's someone who would much prefer his turnaround, uh, jumper versus, you know, kind of just beating a guy down. Yeah. And so look, if, if he's not, if that's not going to be a, like a crutch of the, the Raptors offense, you know, particularly when Kyle Lowry and or Pascal Siakam's off the floor, I don't think you need to worry. I personally wouldn't worry then. I think this ends up, it's more likely to help him a great deal than it is Nicole Jokic. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the next thing I wanted to ask you is more big picture. So we know that this team's well, for me, this team's long-term outlook is probably the most fascinating in the league right now because they're one of the, the squads that view themselves as a Giannis Antetokounmpo contender, but they also have all these key free agents hitting the open market this year. And so I want to throw out one scenario to you is scenario one would be Giannis doesn't sign the Supermax with the Milwaukee Bucks this offseason. How do you want to see Toronto then carrying out its its offseason? Um, I will say um, as a as a uh, um, a war- like as a, I will preface this by saying that I do think that the Milwaukee Bucks have the best chance at retaining him by a huge margin. Like I, I think that his chance of re-signing is probably like 75 percent. But I will say that um, just from a smart point of view, like for his future in the NBA, it just makes the most sense to hold off on signing the supermax. And I don't think it's an indicator that he's going to be leaving the team. Um, you know, right. No, per se, because they've done such a great job at um, not only not only will he have that attachment to it being his the first you know American city that he settled in. You know that's undeniable for someone who you know for a foreign player. But also, it's the team that kind of just molded him into the MVP that he is today, and I'm sure he views it as such too. Um, but but I will say that outside of the Milwaukee Bucks, I, I think that the Raptors have you know the best chance. Um, to signing him because not only do they present like a, a, a an all star at his age, um, they also have you know that flexibility to ensure that they can build around him exactly as he needs it. You know what I mean? And not only that, but just the ability to um, mine for a talent. Like I said earlier, they have this this way of seeing something 
players that may not exhibit something like to the naked eye to your average scout, but they see it and they develop it in a winning system. So um, I do think that they have the best chance, but I also, I, I see him as um, re-signing most likely. But yeah, so the Raptors, like next the 2021 season is going to be super fascinating. The team could look a lot different. I think the only piece that's guaranteed is Pascal Siaka. <laughs> right. Is what? It, how do you tackle the Fred Van Fleet situation this summer? Then, if like, let's say, if Giannis is still um, on the table because he didn't sign the supermax. Yeah. The Knicks are probably showing up at his door at 6:01 mm-hmm. p.m. with, uh, I, I would think, too much money. But absolutely. Uh, how do you, how do you tackle? Like, is this? Do you view if if Giannis Antetokounmpo is still in play? Um, do you think that Fred Van Fleet is on the Raptors next season? Um, there's like an ongoing joke here for fans in Canada because Fred Van Vliet is someone who's about the bag. Like he's always on like, um, Canadian commercials and stuff. <laughs> like He's always trying to get, I see him on Canadian tire commercials. Like he's always trying to get that coin. Like, so <laughs> we have this fear that the biggest offer is going to just completely render him unavailable for us. But I think it's important to retain, um, uh, Fred Van Vliet because it's really hard to, to, um, mold and um groom a point guard that is just so knowledgeable of your system and grew up in it like that that's so difficult in this league unless you're a guy like chris paul who can just go on any team and just take over Mm -hmm. uh if you're not that kind of guy like you need to develop a kid in your system who understands everything who has a bond with the players and can be that brain on the core that extension of the, the coach so uh retaining um fred van vliet is super important i think that if they don't insult him with the offer um, he will take it because he knows that, you know, he's insured winning here. Like the, the Knicks cannot insure that. No, no, um, they cannot. <laughs> you know, I, they can't ensure that they are a well-run uh, system that they can, um, guarantee him competitiveness and a chance. At least I think that's what all players want at the end of the day. They want a chance to be competitive at the highest level. They want a long playoff one. They don't want you to guarantee a ring most of the time, like unless you're Kevin Durant, but if you can guarantee, uh, a, a chance for them to prove themselves like they will take it. So uh, I think Fred gets that in Canada. Uh, I'm probably a little bit more pessimistic on him coming back if Giannis is still on the table again, just because I think that too, th- the that Knicks too. could get that stupid with the like stupid yeah. money. And I'm pro players just going after the bag. I love that Trevor Ariza has just decided he'll sign with who's ever offering the most money and then figure out how to get to a better <laughs> team later on that year. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I agree. Like if, if uh, for, like for me, I'm not as attached um, to Fred, as other um, Raptors fans, I do think that um, his um, he he's he's not really like a pure point guard in the set. He's not if you watch him play, he's not a Kyle Lowry. He's more of um, if there was a spectrum with Kyle Lowry and a Kyrie at the other end, like that point guard that plays like a classic point guard versus the one that plays like a two guard. Um, Fred will lead more towards the Kyrie side of the spectrum. Like he's he's a very kind of a he's a shoot first. Um, point guard, kind of in the in in the ilk of a of a two guard. So I wouldn't be opposed to him leaving and instead focusing on retaining um, uh, Norman Powell because he does bring size. He brings he's a three level scorer. Like I think that kind of talent to have around Giannis would be more uh, adequate. But yeah, if 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 Giannis is still on the table by next year, I think it does um, color whether they do uh, retain Fred or not. In a vacuum, I guess without the Giannis factor or with it, who's more of a flight risk, Mark Gasol or Serge Ibaka? How so? 
Um, just, like in terms of retaining either, either one? Yeah, who's more likely to leave this summer? Between... Oh, I see. Oh, a flight risk, literally a flight risk. <laughs> oh, no, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I was like, well, no, in what terms? <laughs> but anyways, um, no, I see what you mean. Um, uh, I, this is a tough one because is it it's very the opinion is very split um personally i'm in the camp of retaining mark gasol into into retirement i think that his skill set will translate into age like very well um he's someone who does not focus on speed or anything but he focuses more on strength than his brain um i don't i don't see him losing his defensive ability or his um his um uh, passing ability with age. Uh, the thing is with Serge Ibaka, he's, he's, he needs to take shots. Like, right. Like the thing with Mark is that he will give you six points, but he will somehow be the reason why you want. Whereas yeah. Serge Ibaka needs his like 12, uh, attempts per game. He needs to have Kyle Lowry running that pick and roll with him. He cannot operate otherwise. And his, his defense is just average to me. Um, he's a great, excellent shot blocker, but he, he, he's actually somehow slower than Mark Gasol. Um, it, it, I don't understand how, but he is a little. So I, I can see a team out there really paying Mark very well. I mean, uh, Serge very well. Whereas I think that the, uh, I think Mark will end up being the more affordable, sensible option for the Raptors, and also that reduction in um, shot attempts from that position uh, will give a lot of um, um, room for someone like OG to develop more, and someone like Norman Powell to um, take that leap into being a 20 point per game um, scorer, which I think is the next step for Norm. I think he's um, close to 17 points per game right now. Um, so I think that I think um, there are a lot of uh, trickle down um, benefits for the Raptors keeping Mark rather than Serge. Who I love, like Serge is like so adorable. He loves Toronto, it seems like too. He he. Not only does he love Toronto, he's super accessible. Like you'll see him around the city and stuff. And also, like he he's always producing content for the fans. Like he's very <laughs> accessible as a player, which people love. So he's he's very adored. So it'll suck if he left. But Mark is just, I think, the sensible option. Um, side note: I really hope that he for for the content that he wears scarves in Florida and figures out how to get it done. Oh yeah, <laughs> in that heat. <laughs> yeah. Um. So. How so? Let's say Giannis is then off the table because he signs a supermax, which I think is. And actually, one of the things I wanted to say, I don't. I feel bad for markets like Milwaukee. If I see like the Lakers or the Warriors, uh, like fans photoshopping Giannis in their jersey, I've taken. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's like a perverse pleasure out of kind of seeing these two scorned markets, where it's Toronto is now sort of flexing because they want a title and <laughs> exactly. they're staking their claim to Giannis. I've enjoyed kind of just seeing the the back and forth there. So I'm just gonna. Put oh that yeah, on. like <laughs> I, I I I pride myself in like being one of the the early proponents of this. <laughs> like <laughs> I, we are in a different position. We're not we're not losing a player right now. We're um we're like we have one in our scopes um that we like for the future. And I I feel terrible for Milwaukee fans because I remember how horrible it was seeing um those pictures of Kawhi and his opposing in in other jerseys, and uh, I can't imagine for a player they see literally uh, raised by their system as a kid <laughs> becoming an MVP caliber player. It, it must suck like extra bad, but you know, it's not my problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's say Giannis signs the Supermax, which as yeah. you've already outlined, that's, that's super possible, if not probable. Yeah. How, how do you want to see the Raptors proceed from there? Because they still have those free agents. Lowry's mm-hmm. getting older as a year left on his deal. You found the foundational superstar, but do you, do you go into a more gradual rebuild or do you kind of focus on, keeping this together with maybe amplifying it a little bit, or you're trying to straddle two timelines at once. I'm, I'm interested to see how you answer this because I actually feel like their future gets really complicated. If not just Giannis doesn't sign there, but if he's off the table this summer. Yeah. Um, 
the thing is, I think about this a lot. I think that um, I think that um, Masai Ujiri has learned and seen just from evidence around the league that um, tanking isn't always the way to go. Um, sometimes it's best to just do a gradual rebuild and remain competitive. I think that's the future for the Raptors if Giannis is on the, off the table, whether it's 2021 or if it's um, uh, this uh, fall now. Um, I think that they should continue. I think that they should retain Kyle Lowry and Marc Gasol. Um, obviously, keep Pascal Siakam um, and somehow keep Norm and Fred. But I, not not Fred, sorry. Keep Norm and OG. And then continuing to develop Terrence Davis and you know um, the other rookies that they've retained. So... I, I see a gradual rebuild in their future where they remain competitive. It, the thing about it is that Pascal um, is kind of the it, it he's kind of the the center of all this in the sense mm-hmm. that it depends on whether he is a floor raiser or a ceiling raiser, which we're going to see in the future. Um, and either is fine. A, a floor raiser is someone that I think they're going to need to pair with an MVP caliber talent. So um, whether it's developing their young talent and then trading for an available player in the future if they get lucky, or if he's a ceiling raiser where they can really, they have something really special where if they continue, if they continue to develop this guy and surround him with capable role players and maybe another all-star, not even a superstar, they can um, mold him to be that player that can take them to the final. So for, for me personally, just based on his trajectory and how unprecedented his growth has been, I think that Pascal can be a, a ceiling raiser sort of player. And also, I, I think players like him, starting off as a role player is so useful. We saw it with Kawhi Leonard. Right. Uh, it, it just makes them so kind of in tune to the system where they're very fine with whatever role they're given. Um, and I, I see that in him. So the, I think the future would be continuing to um, grow as they are and build around Pascal. So surrounding him with shooters, surrounding him with passive, with um, uh, capable passers, sorry. Uh, I think that's I think that's the outlook for them. So it, it, gets, it definitely gets very interesting. It can be a completely different iteration of the team. Um, but for me, I, I prefer they keep uh, Mark and... Kyle for that veteran leadership and to have them as the only two old guys on the roster <laughs> and then continue um, just going up skewing younger because I, I don't think they need any more um, guys in their um, mid to late 20s I think we're gonna have a, a overload of that soon and we're gonna we don't want to end up like w- like with the Milwaukee Bucks what makes their future so um, uh, tough is that a lot of their players are older I think they're the oldest team in the NBA uh, because they surrounded so Giannis with so many players that were like around the same age in their late twenties, and now they're moving into their thirties and um, early thirties. So um, it, I think they had, they should skew younger the Raptors. <clears throat> and look, if we assume that Pascal Siakam is the the ceiling raiser, and I, it's probably fair to make that assumption now. I, I think the probably the most interesting swing piece on the team then becomes what is OG Ananobi? Because you mentioned if yeah. he, if he is yeah. that fringe All Star player. Um, that helps you out a great deal because then doesn't necessarily make him your number two on offense. But if you have a second best player type on a champ like championship mm-hmm. team material, that goes a long way as well. Mm-hmm. I know you have to get out of here, Yasmin. I want to thank you for coming on. I really enjoyed uh, this this discussion. If um, you guys are not following her on Twitter, you can follow her as I mentioned at the top at Carmelo Drama C A R M E L O H D R A M A. Uh, thank you so much again for coming on, Yasmin. I'm sure I'll be pestering you again in the future. <laughs> Thanks for having me. This is awesome. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. 
legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history, relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.